Anybody out there? Can you hear the sounds? Is there anybody listening? Hello and welcome to our podcast, The Simber Dialogues. I'm your host, Sukanya. And the other host, Derail. Derail. I will not derail this conversation today. Oh, I, I'm praying. And this is the only time I pray. It's please, let not Daryl derail the conversation. Zarathustra has spoken. <laughs> uh, so what the hell's been going on? It's been, what, 20-some days since our last podcast? Jesus Christ, it's it's been insane. You know, we thought that May was insane, and June just brought a whole platter of shit show for us. The riots pretty much started this month. Yeah. Yep. So our last episode, we did talk about it, and that was only about a week in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now we're nearly a month in to the riots and the protests. and the <sighs> Yep. Yep. Um, so, you know, last time, I think, we had this whole um, movement of Black Lives Matter I think it was back in 2013, 14. Oh, they come out every time there's a... Was it 13 or 14? When was it coined? When was the term coined? I don't remember off the top of my head. But they pretty much come out every time there's a a case of a police officer killing a black man. I think the first time I heard it was when Trevor... Uh, Trevon Mar- Martin. Trevon Martin. Yes, that, that was, was the first time, uh, at least I heard of it. I, I don't think Black Lives Matter came out initially for that. I think the one that triggered Black Lives Matter to become a national movement, I believe, was in Missouri. The I'm trying to think of the city. I think that was when it was really big because the mm. Trayvon Martin wasn't a police officer mm. case. That was just. That wasn't a police officer. That was George Zimmerman. Ah, uh, gotcha. I think he used to be a cop at one point, but gotcha. he wasn't a cop. Yeah. Um, what the fuck? The, the protests in Missouri, I'm trying to think. Mm. I don't know. But anyone that remember, any anyone that knows anything about this will remember what I'm talking about. I'm forgetting the city. But yes, it's been they've been around for a number of years. I think that would have been in 2013, 2014. That's what that I happened during Obama's. I think so. Yeah, think that's where year. I think I heard of Black Lives Matter first. I think 2013 or 14. Yeah. But uh, we will talk about that in a minute. What have we been watching lately? So <laughs> here's the thing. I, I know you had mentioned it to me. I think I don't even. Did you mention it to me ever? About I, men- I mentioned it to you in the past, but I think you had a bit of a bias against. I don't think cartoons. so. I don't think you, you did. You did mention. We had it. talked about Avatar at one point. I don't know, Not but okay. Discussion. Anyways, uh, recently, uh, the show Avatar: The Last Airbender has been uh, taken up by Netflix, and I've been seeing all these Instagram posts and uh, Facebook posts about how people are you know, binging on it and watching it. And uh, one of my favorite YouTubers actually um, had a post about how she was crying in the last episode and how she binge watched the whole show. And that kind of sparked my interest in actually seeing what what it was all about. And 
DJ had been mentioning about it on and off, and we just decided to jump the bandwagon because we have this nothing else to watch. Wagon. This came out in 2004 or 2005. Yeah, but we had nothing else to watch for the time being. We've almost kind of wrapped up with a lot of good series, good TV shows. So we're like, you know what? What the hell? Let's just let's just do it. And honestly, going into it, I was very biased. I was like, okay, a cartoon show can't be good. Like an animation show cannot be good. It cannot be deep. It cannot be, huh. you know, if it, it's it's catering to kids, it really cannot touch on the uh, the deeper aspects of life. But I'm surprised by how good it is and how deep and um, you know, kind of reflective it is of human existence mm-hmm. and life and war and all these societal things that we see, you know, in our everyday life has been brought up in some way or the other in that episode beautifully. No, it's not been forced down. It's not misplaced in any way, but really, really beautifully uh, blended into the episodes. Yeah. Well, maybe Avatar how it opened your eyes to animation and anime. That's just Well, it's going not to... anime, though. Avatar is not anime, it's is a, it? It's a, it's a gateway into it. It's still more cartoon, but just the whole that, that whole format for TV, I think, is going to open up all sorts of venues for you to explore because there are a lot of good anime-slash-cartoon shows out there that aren't 800 episodes long. <laughs> there are some that they're, they're just really solid. They have uh, good writing, great characters. There's a lot of allegories and metaphors they throw in there. Just, think about it. The people that create cartoons are also artists. They also think about the world and they'll use this as a medium mm-hmm. to portray how they feel about the world. It can usually be... Uh, a more creative form of expression because now you're not using actors and you're not using real life portrayals, but you can really get creative with how do you portray the world? Like what if your characters have certain powers? How do, how do these characters having these powers use that ability to reflect in on themselves, kind of reflect on the human condition. We see that with superhero films. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyways, nice tangent Yeah. into cartoons. But it, you were tying into a lot of the metaphors they had in Avatar itself. Mm-hmm. And uh, just some of the ones I was able to think of, I'll typing this up. They had like different metaphors and allegories on race, uh, tribalism, uh, finding inner peace with, uh, was it Zuko, mm-hmm. the Fire Nation kid? And his struggles dealing with hatred and anger towards the other kingdoms and wanting to dominate uh, just general wisdom uh, and finding strength through mutual reliance and teamwork. And a big one, I think it was really confronted was when they went to the, the water kingdom in the, North, the North Pole. Pole. Yeah. yeah. And they had the old traditions they were confronting where like females weren't able to water bend in a warrior like way. The only thing they could do is heal. Um, but Katara kind of blew that out of the water. No pun intended. Yeah, it's definitely been very nice seeing how they bring these ideas up. It's not, like you're saying, not forced. It doesn't feel cheesy. It doesn't feel out of place within the story, which is often a problem with a lot of newer shows that there's a current trend for some, whether it's social justice or some 
issue that people are very interested in that they quickly write it into the show, even though it doesn't make any sense to where they're putting it into the show. And again, going back to the fact this came out in like 2004 or 2005, it was ahead of the game on pretty much all of these issues Mm -hmm. as far as talking about them in this sort of media. Yep. Yep. And on Nickelodeon of all channels. Yes. So. Yep. It is, it's amazing, like, you know, how they've, <laughs> funny enough, they brought up um, the fact of inclusion. And it was amazing. Like, you see all these different characters from different spectrums, from different, you know, corners of life coming together, but everyone has their unique, uh, you know, power, or their unique uh, yeah. contribution. And it's just, you know, amazing to see. I saw, like, they had this uh, episode with the swamp people. Oh, God. And <laughs> it's funny because the swamp people were also waterbenders. And, uh, oh, I call them swamp benders. Swamp benders because, you know, they were very alienated from the rest of the world living in uh, these um, swampy areas and kind of uncouth and, you know, but... At the end of the day, it was it was kind of funny because they also had a very redneck accent, <laughs> and Katara being a waterbender as well. And there was this comment by one of the swamp people saying that, "Oh, so we're yeah. we both are the same. Like you know, we we both share the same." She cringed, and she cringed. <laughs> though she, deep down, she knew that they have the same kind of powers, but I think. You know, that's a really good metaphor for, you know, however much the elites or um, I guess the more educated uh, classes people would try to separate themselves from, you know, the rural uh, Americans. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, both of them are Americans and uh, both of them benefit and contribute to the American system and this isn't just an American problem I mean yeah I mean I'm just talking from you know from the point of view of you know because I mentioned rednecks but it's like a global thing you know it it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor uh, ultimately you both are a part of the system and uh, it won't work and it won't work without both of you existing together yeah one thing I've really appreciated about the show is the complexity in which they treat members of all of the nations. Like, there's no clear-cut good or bad nation. Um, I guess maybe with the exception of the Air Kingdom, because we haven't seen much of them. But, like, the waterbenders obviously had their goods, the good and bad. Um, we've seen, like, the South Pole, they seem like very good-natured, humble people. They go to the North Pole. They're very rigid very uh, old like they have like an old way of living mm-hmm. they're stuck in their traditions we're seeing that with the earth kingdom initially we saw it with boomy very light-hearted very friendly no one could hate boomy but then we see the other end of the earth kingdom where they're well he had the one guy i don't spoils but spoilers but uh they're given very much two sides of the coin and even with the Fire Kingdom, you see the, the Fire Lord. Obviously, he's the big baddie in this. But then you see Zuko and uh, the old man. Iroh. Iroh. Iroh really provides the humanity to the Fire Kingdom. 
Mm-hmm. It makes like I'm just watching and wondering like what could have been if he was the Fire Lord or if he became the Fire Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just I, I I love I love the humanity that they they put into all the characters that they introduce on the show. Yep. Like it's rare to see any of the character in a complete one dimension. Like there's so many layers and mm-hmm. and I think as the show progresses, you just see these layers being peeled off mm-hmm. and there's something deeper in that i loved you know last night we watched one of the episodes and i loved the conflict that zuko had with his past and present and how he uh iroh said that you know you're you're at war with yourself and this is the metamorphosis of your soul so you're gonna change into something else and but the fight will not be easy no like he was physically ill because of the decision that he made. I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't watched Avatar yet. And I can like vouch for that because I'm sure anyone who's dealt with, you know, um, trauma in the past or kind of, you know, I, I wouldn't call it just trauma, but I guess anything that kind of shaped your worldview and then when you're trying to overcome that in some way or the other it's almost like a war within yourself you know a conflicting um, I guess interchange of ideas and how uh, you're going to shape your worldview moving forward with a new perspective um, it, it's it's very philosophical yeah for sure I mean I, I can speak from my own experience leaving religion it's it's weird. It's like your brain has shackles, and when you start to release those shackles, your brain doesn't know what to do anymore, and you start having all these questions like, well, will my loved ones still accept me? Like in Zuko's case, mm-hmm. his dad, he's pretty much given up the fact that he'll ever have his dad again. Mm-hmm. His family, his his uh, legacy to become, eventually he wanted to become the Fire Lord himself. Just a, you feel like when it's such a core part of your identity, you're giving up much more than just that idea. And uh, when I saw him struggling like that in sickness, I, I could almost kind of relate to what that feeling was like when I gave up being a Christian and trying to pave the new path for myself. And it, it takes a while. It, it takes a few years. And even then, the, the psychological trauma that's dealt from those old ideas that still linger sometimes. It's uh, definitely a struggle. Yep. So, again, though, I just love the humanity that they inject into this show, and I wish wish more of these lessons, more than just the diversity, because I know that's a big selling point for, I think, why Avatar's coming back. It has Mm -hmm. clearly a diverse cast of characters. Mm -hmm. For all the complaints of media not containing enough strong female protagonists, this one has it in spades. Apparently the strongest earthbender of this whole show is a little girl. Come on. Come on. I, this show has everything. But the biggest thing, I, I think the biggest lesson that we could probably take from the show right now is learning to see the humanity in one another. Yeah. Even if someone seems evil on the surface, just dig a little bit deeper. Just try to understand where they may be coming from, why they are angry, why they are hateful. Um and don't lose sight of the fact that yes people can change and we can't indefinitely hold people a grudge against people for actions they had in the past if they're different right now yep like we need a path for redemption so they can be better people mm-hmm. and that's something that we should you know we should take into consideration when we are 
talking about incarceration, uh, you know, uh, also <laughs> the so-called, you know, racist tendencies mm -hmm. uh, that we claim people have. So people digging through Twitter and finding shit from like 10 years ago. And yeah, I mean, if that person is a different person now, you know, that's that's a good thing. Change is good. And, yeah. you know, if it's changed towards a positive direction and they are now advocates for, uh, you know, uh, the stuff that they their misdeeds and they're kind of advocating against that. It's a good thing. Yeah. Especially if it's genuine, they weren't forced. No one was threatening them. They just kind of evolved mm -hmm. to that position. Trying to force people that have already changed for the better to apologize again for the stuff they did. Mm -hmm. it, I, don't, I don't know. I think it just rubs a lot of people the wrong way. They see it for what it is. Yep. And the people that didn't change can kind of just blend in, become chameleons. Like, oh, well, I'm going to apologize too, and then people will forgive me and... Yep. I, I don't know. It's, and this whole idea just because people change over time that de facto makes them hypocrites, I don't. I, uh, there needs to be a threshold. Like, why did someone change? Was it because they actually felt like it was wrong? Or did they feel pressured to do it? And are they still continuing the behavior, just not as publicly? Mm -hmm. like that, I, I think that's probably the biggest one. Are they still doing it? They're telling other people not to do it, but they're still doing it themselves. That would be my threshold for hypocrisy. This whole idea that people should be chastised for the rest of their lives for mistakes of the past is just absurd to me. And if that's the mentality we're going to take, why not just put them on the guillotine? Just kill them already. Yeah. Like, you're not going to give them a chance to make amends and do better. Yeah. And it's like you're saying with the incarceration. It's like, are we ever going to let these people return to a normal life? Or, or are we going to hold over... Uh, a felony over their head to where they can't even get a, good, a job anymore. Mm -hmm. So many jobs will just automatically exclude them because of their mm -hmm. felony record. Mm -hmm. I know that there are more, um, you know, regulations and um, policies coming up, which kind of allows them to be treated fairly where, you know, you're not, you don't have to disclose anything about a felony, you know, when you're applying for a job until you have been, uh, selected for that position uh, so as to give you a fair chance. So it's called the Fair Chance Act. Um, yeah. it, it is. I know for sure it's applicable in New York because we have dealt with that, but uh, I'm not sure about the rest of the U.S. Yeah, as far as I know, there isn't a national policy addressing this, so it's state by state. I'm, I think I would imagine California probably has something similar. Mm -hmm. But as it stands, I think the average time, say if you want wanted to get your record expunged is about 10 years like for one felony that's crazy it's like 10 years clean or 10 years of no more criminal activity with the whole understanding that your job op options are going to be very limited aren't we essentially just setting people up for failure to just go back to selling drugs or theft or like, are you going to tell me you expect them to work at Dollar General for the next 10 years at minimum wage? Yep. That's... Especially uh, for something they have done as, you know, young like adults. Like 18, yeah. 19. You know, uh, I don't know. I mean, there, there, there should be a better path for them to get reintegrated into yeah. society, you know, rehabilitation program, uh, whatever it is, you know, teach them skills. 
Um, again, prison. I I hate the word prison. I do not like the word because it's so hardcore yeah. in a way. Like it, it has this negative. Um, uh, I guess like um, what do you call it? A, a, a negative tone behind it. It should rather be a rehabilitation center, you know, rather than a prison or a jail, whatever. We were talking about this the other day and the whole problem of gang culture or people that get into a life of crime. So many of them get involved in these groups at a fairly young age. Usually they're missing uh, some role model in their life or there's not really any support system or strong community. So they get sucked into the first people that kind of show them any sort of compassion or love or even if it's very faint. It's like, isn't it kind of counterintuitive, counterintuitive to just continually put them in such harsh environments like prison and then to continually penalize them after they get out of prison and keep calling them felons and essentially treating them the way they think they are mm -hmm. rather than giving them a chance to actually see a vision of themselves of who they could be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like think of all the perks that you get from having an, a, a better job, not just working at mm -hmm. some low-end job. Mm -hmm. Let's say you get a nice office job somewhere or a job that's probably a scale or two above minimum wage people where there are places where there's long-term employment where there's people that stay there for years and you can develop a sense of community at these work environments almost a sense of pride for your job I'm not talking about Walmart I'm not talking about Dollar General I'm not talking about a grocery store I'm talking about jobs that you actually have a little more pride in your work like what that could do to the quote-unquote felon their self-esteem and just their sense of place within the community, mm -hmm. if given that chance. Yeah, I agree. Just I don't I don't know. I think, and I might sound very hippy dippy, but I think the world needs a little bit more love and compassion mm -hmm. than just strict rules and laws. And uh, you know, laws are important, but you can achieve a lot by just you know offering some sort of empathy and compassion for someone rather than just punishing them and we've seen them been seen it like you know for uh, so many examples we have of how people change when you actually do positive reinforcements instead of you know tearing them down and you know putting the fear of god in them instead you know building them up through uh you know boosting their confidence creating this sense of community uh, finding uh, this place where they feel they belong and that is something that's going to go such a long way than just you know putting the fear in them that oh you know you fucked up so you're fucked for the last rest of the life that's the biggest problem here like any other debt in society whether it's financial where you can go bankrupt yeah you can lose your debt uh, say if you get a car or a house, you can technically pay that debt off and then you're free of that debt. Mm -hmm. um, for whatever reason, crime, the, the only payment for crime typically is prison time or jail time. Mm -hmm. But even when you pay your time, like you're paying your debt, the debt still lingers after that. That needs to stop. Yeah. If you get a 20-year prison sentence for a crime that you committed, at the end of that 20 years, 
as far as society is concerned, you paid that off. Yeah. We should start looking at it like that. Not, well, they fucked up one time and therefore at the end of this, we're going to continually hold that against them. That, that doesn't make any sense to me. Mm-hmm. Like if that's the mentality we're going to hold, we might as well just banish these people out of society. Or just kill them. You know, you really don't want them, want these people back in society anymore. All right. Uh, sorry for the distraction. My cat's trying to climb in a box. Uh, I'll be right back. <laughs> go. So Magoo has this real affinity to cardboard boxes, and he's he's honestly a very chill cat. He doesn't care about much. He doesn't play too much, you know. But if there is paper and if there is cardboard laying around, oh god, that's his crack cocaine. That's not even an, an exaggeration at all. <laughs> if you have an empty box anywhere, he he will crawl in it at least once. He needs to get his hair in there. <laughs> He owns that. Right now, for the last like three weeks, he's been laying on our TV box under the bed. Just lays on it. That's his new bed. I think he left it briefly, but then he keeps going back to it. He yeah. likes his box. Even though he can't lay in the box, he's laying on the box. Something with the cardboard. He just loves paper and cardboard. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well... Just figured, uh, would I be able to share some thoughts that I had from the past week? Absolutely. Okay. What did you think about the last couple weeks? Yeah, a couple weeks is more accurate because it's been <laughs> 20 some days. Uh, so I kind of, I mean, the primary season's been pretty much over. Pandemic hit. And now we have all the, the racial protests and the typical bullshit that peruses on Facebook. You have the Black Lives Matter crowd. A cab, and then you have all the conservative Republicans going blue lives matter. Uh, obviously, just citing all the riots and property destruction, and it's like I don't know. I just kind of I've I've taken a step back, and I think you can probably attest to this. I haven't written nearly as much in the last month or two mm-hmm. as I was during the primaries, and I, I've just noticed how much clearer my head is. Like I don't feel. I feel like I can view things from a better vantage point now that I'm not stuck in the trenches dealing with all the political daily battles and the culture war and just the typical political day-to-day drama. And just, uh, I mean, this is something I think can apply to any situation, just kind of learning to take a step back once in a while, get your emotions out out of an issue, just trying to see things for what they are. I don't know. And then moreover, uh, uh, the bigger problem is we all have limited energy for protest and outrage. So just getting outraged day to day on whatever stories that are being spun, it's exhausting. It is. I, I can vouch for that because there was a point where Honestly, I was feeling emotionally drained, though it, this is not an issue that directly affects me. But, you know, just just seeing the the vitriol from both sides, um, you know, it's, it's just so unacceptable because 
hate is not going to do anything hate is just gonna breed more hatred and leads to a lot more destruction leads to this sense of animosity if we are gonna live in this country i think people should understand that there are forces out there that benefits from everyone being very divided mm -hmm. and secluded and uh, forming their own little bubbles and groups uh, the only way you can combat these forces are uh, you know to have again a sense of empathy compassion understanding you know one thing is for sure I and I think it is true almost you know majority of the people in this country loves this country and you know understands and benefits from the perks of living in this country and we know that if we were in another country that did not <laughs> that did not you know offer these services these protections it, we would be in a worse situation i think majority of people do understand that but the extreme divisiveness that we have that has cre that has been created by uh, a class of people that has nothing to do with the common man in this country has just you know honestly made the situation worse you mm -hmm. know and it's high time i think people realize that it's this is not serving them anything this is not serving anything good to them just you know i'm not saying move past it because obviously you know if you've had we need to talk about it if you had trauma if you had yeah. you know uh, experiences that negative experiences that has led you to believe in you know uh, this uh, this divisiveness that exists i think an open discussion is you know uh, necessary you have to sit down and talk with an open mind you know and without listen. and listen listening is the most important thing and understand where the other person is coming from and where their worldview is coming from because you know just by a civil conversation i think even if you don't agree you can still come to a point of mutual understanding you know even if you completely 100% don't agree with each other and that is what is lacking and i think social media though it's a wonderful place to you know bring forward a lot of uh the injustices that's happening but it's also a very bad echo chamber yeah. uh, especially if you uh, constrict yourself to a certain group of people so i would just say go out there and and make new friends and you know just, just go and see what's there on the other side what's the discussions like and staying away from uh media i'm sure that you, everyone out here everyone okay we have we have friends or family who believe in things completely different from us we all have one or two people in our well, lives we manage not to murder them when we see them yes or do it devolve into a massive argument so so the best thing to do is actually you know sit with them and ask rational questions as to why they believe what they believe or why they have a certain point of view 
and try to understand where they're coming from. And, you know, you can state your point of view, why you think, without any anger, rage, or blaming, you know, each other, just stating it and see if you can come to a mutual point of agreement. Yeah. I mean, as bad as Facebook is, Twitter's even worse. And I, I can't say Twitter created this environment that made it so the political sides couldn't agree. That political div- divisiveness has been around for decades. I mean, probably all time for human society. Uh, but I certainly think it exacer- exacerbated it. And Facebook isn't much better, especially in the age of meme culture and doing a quick one meme of some actor or somebody with a quote calling someone else stupid or dumb or it just it's just so much provocative material and then maybe if we instead look to get one over the other side maybe approach a conversation with what do we have in common talk from that build from that and realize that the differences that we have could be fairly minute in many cases. Could just be a couple of issues, a couple handful of issues. And if we got to that point, even then I think you would earn enough goodwill with the person you're talking with that maybe you could even hash out a nice compromise with those issues you're talking about. Mm. And I mean, we've seen it with conversations we've had. We rarely, in person at least, rarely have had nasty arguments with people even if there are deep disagreements it, like instead of uh, demonizing the other person it's just like that just prompts more questions from us but also we have a sense of humor where sometimes we can just laugh things off yeah <laughs> and I, I, I don't know I think with social media we, we lose humanity we we lose a sense of humanity for the people that we're talking with. We forget that these are also human beings that have feelings, that have lives, that have stories that could potentially contribute in a positive way to this discussion if people, both sides of that discussion were being came to in a very genuous way. They're not looking just to pick a fight, just to piss people off, to to get the lid tarts or to, to troll the redneck Republicans or it, it, you've seen it. It's, yeah. I don't know. You, you get people together in a room and it's so much easier to come to some sort of an agreement. Yep. And I don't know. I mean, I don't think it has to be this bad, but de- definitely take a step back from the media would help in the, the daily dramas and stop being hypocrites Call out your own shit. Stop identifying with your party. If your party fucked up, just call it out. Don't. The, the one thing I don't understand, DJ. Maybe you know you can uh, enlighten me on that. But I personally, I hate the idea of belonging to a group. I'm very individualistic, and I think even the U.S. promotes a lot of individualism. Right? It's like. Except for politics. Yeah, and then I just don't understand why do you have to identify yourself with a group, with a party? You know, you can have your own principles. And 
in what what's the worst that happens when you identify with a group i mean there there are perks to their benefits but the bad side of it is that you become so indoctrinated with whatever propaganda they are trying to promote that you lose any sense of rationality you would have been a different person would have considered someone's you know issues and trouble but just because you are a part of the group that is pushing a narrative you completely <laughs> become blind you know to the problems to the suffering of the other side yeah well this is going back to avatar when iro was teaching zuko about the wisdom gained from learning about the other cultures the other kingdoms mm-hmm. i think that was just a great allegory for what you're talking about mm-hmm. like yeah. zuko was dumbfounded when iro was talking about the fact that it is still important even if these are technically because your he, adversar- because adversaries because he actually said that he learned this uh a new move a new fire move firebending move studying the waterbenders from studying the waterbenders and zuko's mind was blown that he could even do that and that's where he said like you can learn from other cultures to imbibe the good from them and you know uh, make enhance your own lives enhance your own way of thinking yeah i mean we can vouch for that dj right like i once i met you and i started knowing about your world view it it helped me change certain things about how i used to think about certain groups of people certain um you know way of doing things and i'm sure it has done the same for you oh absolutely and uh yeah i i don't think like what you're saying with groups i don't think that it really allows for that especially if they're very rigid and have their own ideologies and clearly they're going to have their own blind spots that you will not be privy to unless you expose yourself to other points of view and maybe you see the holes in your own arguments after you go out there and you try to solidify this position mm-hmm. it's not going to be easy it's not going to be uh like for us like when we met each other it wasn't it wasn't a walk in the park it wasn't uh this oh my god you're right i i've been doing this wrong my whole life Therefore, I'm going to change right away. No, there was there was fights. There, there were resistance. There was definitely a lot of resistance. There was uh, a defensiveness. Like holy shit! Like it's like this weird rubber band effect. And the more someone else is pulling at that rubber band, yeah, you're gonna feel that tension pulling you, and it's gonna want to snap. And it's not easy confronting these things. We can tie this into why people don't like to talk about past, the past, and history, and. Uh, the sins of our ancestors it's like these are a lot of things that kind of challenge who we are yep. and unless you're talking with somebody that was maybe on the receiving end of those sins that can be very uncomfortable yeah um you know disturbing and in a way like it just shakes your foundation because <laughs> think about this and just an example say someone from the south whose granddad i mean great granddad had been a confederate soldier who mm-hmm. fought for the confederacy that is a thing yeah right and this guy yeah. in the south right he's definitely maybe he's not racist you know he's not in today's day and time i wouldn't call it racism anymore it's more of a bias that you have rather than 
blatant racism but you know definitely he's not acting on his biases or whatever but when you are <laughs> bringing down statues of you know confederate soldiers and figures or whatever in a way it is really deep down punching in his gut thinking that his lineage or someone in his you know line of uh, family had actually contributed to the pain and suffering of someone else and it is very hard to accept that truth for them yeah i'm not i'm not especially if you wait to address this problem you don't address it right away yeah and you let it sit for generation so become, after generation after generation you become defensive about that and you start talking about pride and how you take pride in your history and your past but deep down very very deep down you know that that was not right and that eats you up and that's why you come out and try and defend those uh, deeds in the past uh, by putting the you know silver wrapping the gold wrapping of claiming the civil war wasn't about slavery but states rights even though old documents claim exclusively it was for slaves preservation of the the industry of slave trade so you know i i just think that when people say like oh don't you can't erase history which i agree you cannot erase history but let's talk about the history let's the hist- let the history be transparent yes. because whatever has been put in the history books they're not accurate or they miss giant there's giant plot holes in the story yeah, yeah. i mean they have been they have definitely been uh, twisted in a way to serve whoever was in power at that time it yep. was not meant for people who lost it was not meant for people who you know were on the the minority section of the the debate or the issue and even speaking on the sole statue art or statue debate this is a thing that blows my mind and this is i mean something relatively new in my mind that i wasn't completely aware of but just the fact that a lot of these statues were erected well after the civil war Actually, Often, John Oliver did that yeah. show, the, the, yep. the section he did. That was where several years ago. It Actually, most of the Civil War statues were made in 1930 and 40. So yeah. it was even like during World War II that it was constructed. They were and pissed that there were black soldiers in the military. Yep. And also, uh, some were even more recent in 1960s. After the Civil Rights Act. It is insane. Yeah, they, these were purposely put up to antagonize the civil rights protesters. That, that's what blows my mind when people are saying, oh, you're taking down history. I'm like, no, motherfucker. These were not put up to represent history. These were to pretty much serve as an extension of Jim Crow. These were served, put up to essentially try and continually put down black people in these communities. So like, how would they feel if, if Germany had like a Hitler statue and said that, oh, but this is a part of our history? No. You are not going to glorify someone who who just killed millions and millions of people the atrocities of war you are not going to glorify those people yep and uh, a couple years ago i think i was a little more on the side just keep the fucking statues but now even if even if you're pissed off that so many statues are just being pulled down illegally uh, you shouldn't be doing it on private property because that's people's private property but any on public lands Right now, at this particular point in time, 
I really don't care, even if I, I kind of care a little bit if it's some statues that weren't pertain to the Civil War, but even still, I've seen just the gross, willful ignorance or blindness people have had on the conservative side to any of these racial issues, and it's just like there's more of this tendency just to plug your ears and go, la, 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 I can't hear you, and not actually address the problem. So in my mind, if we would have just addressed this 10, 20, 30 years ago, 40, 50, 60 years ago, if you actually would have addressed these problems and stopped telling black people that they're being whiny little bitches and actually fixed the fucking problems, call out the racism for what it is, stop like, oh, that's just Uncle Bob. People wouldn't be so angry right now. They wouldn't be going out there burning buildings and tearing down statues. And, and, you know, another thing that John Oliver had brought up and which I absolutely agree is that these statues should go back to like a Civil War museum, maybe. Where if they actually were erected y- during that time. Yeah. You know, and for to educate people about what happened. But this should not be, you know, statues out about in public where you're actually glorifying naming streets, naming army uh, bases. Like with, almost exclusively. That That's is what they're, that is insane. Yeah. That is insane. And we've actually had a very similar thing in India, DJ, about this because a lot of our streets were named after a lot of the British, um, mm. you know, uh, council generals and uh, chancellors and stuff. So now th- there's a huge thing of changing those names back to... Uh, the original names. Th- the, I mean, more Indian names because we want to celebrate our culture and not, yeah. you know... Because, so, so like, for instance... Um, uh, you know, there were like some streets, like for instance, there was um, this like, I think it was, uh, well, for instance, Park Street, right? Park Street is no more considered Park Street. It has become Mother Teresa Sharani, uh, you know. Yeah, which I know what you mean. You know, but it's like she was, she actually was there. She contributed in some way or another. I mean, we, ha- we have debates about this, but, you know. So we are trying to kind of embrace more of what is current and something that, you know. I know that's been even a suggestion for a lot of these statues that are being taken down that I've seen lists. John Oliver brought up some of like local legends, Mm -hmm. people that became greats in various fields. Why not memorialize them with a statue? There is no controversy there. There shouldn't be. No, no. and you know what? <laughs> the thing that really blows my mind, and <laughs> this is, I'm sure you're, you're going to attest to this as well. It's like, I understand if someone down south is bringing up about the Confederacy and they are fighting about it. For their but, heritage. But when people up north who had nothing to do with that talks about or posts about um, how Confederacy is their heritage, it just fucking blows my mind i think this is where ignorance comes into play and maybe just how our public education system isn't doing a very good job in this regard but at some point in time that confederate flag that you see that's not even the original confederate flag but whatever somehow became this icon for rebellion or being a rebel flag somewhere down the line we have failed and just depicting what that flag actually was and meant. And the fact that that became the cultural icon of the South and we don't understand why or why people have identified with that, 
I think the, the true meaning of that had been lost somewhere. It's like I wouldn't go out and say that everyone has a fucking rebel flag plastered on their truck that automatically hates black people. I don't think that's the case. Mm-hmm. I'd be hard-pressed to find everyone. Are there racists that have rebel flags on their trucks? Fuck yeah. That's, I'm not going to say that's not the case, but is everyone that has a rebel flag on their house or their truck a, a racist? I doubt it. Like They would probably share a beer with a black dude. They don't. It's probably more like a, a middle finger to the government, and that's like SJW culture or whatever they think it is. But this is where I think listening would really just come into play beyond education. Like when we're having these dialogues, instead of getting defensive, just, just talk about it. Even the people that are mad about the fact that the flags are being represented on someone's vehicle, just go talk to them. You will be scared, though. Because they'll probably have Maybe some of them, but this is, this is the culture. <laughs> and pointed right yeah. at you and be like, you motherfuckers, step out. Sure, sure. There will be some of those types, and I won't, I won't, I won't fight against you not wanting to talk to that person. But what I would hope for, in like if I could create a new culture of dialogue, is just this mutual understanding that if someone's coming to talk to you in a peaceful manner, just respond in a peaceful way. You don't have to get angry. You don't have to be like, "But America, but this is my flag. This is my freedom." It's like just just shut up and listen for a second. Just just listen to why they're upset. And vice versa, maybe the person that coming over, just ask them, hey, why do you have this flag? What do you think it means? Just... Most of the time, they won't be able to answer. Exactly. And then that's when you could kind of interrogate and bring in the actual historical reasons. Like, hey, by the way, this flag was continually used after slavery was abolished just as a way to keep black people down. Like, is that what you're trying to do with this flag? Oh, no, I didn't know that's what it meant. It's like, well, that's pretty much what it did. So... All I'm just kindly asking, could you just please stop using this flag? Or even like, you know, maybe find why you're using this flag and, you know, understand the history behind the flag. I wouldn't even suggest they stop using it because that then, you know, when you tell people not to do True. it, they'll they'll just double down and just do it anyway. So just just ask them to do their research on that. Like, hey, yeah. why, since you're displaying it, do you, yeah. you want to find out more about the history of it? Mm-hmm. It's like, it, it seems so simple. All of this seems so simple. Yep. It's like, I, w- I would just ask people on the left, let's get away from this toxic idea of demonizing people. I would argue if you feel like you are on the right side of history, you know what you do? You take the high road. Be the better person. Yeah. You don't have to, you don't have to get down the mud. You don't have to be the asshole. You don't turn yourself into the asshole by asking nice questions. You don't have to riot. You don't have to go over and, I don't want to say belittle, but harass the person because they have, just go talk. I know it's hard. It's not easy. It's not easy being the bigger person. But ultimately, I think that will be the best path forward. Ask questions. Yeah. Asking questions really opens up other uh, the other person's, you know, uh I guess, constricted viewpoints because then they start questioning it themselves. Like, oh, what, what, what's the answer for that then? Hmm. Hmm. More times than not, I think if you actually had, just have that little gem of information, maybe they don't change their mind right away, but that's going to, that's going to be like a seed in their brain and it, and it will sprout into bigger things. 
It's not impossible. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you come at them in an angry manner and an, like an attacking manner, the defensive guard goes up, they're gone. I mean, we have seen this even when we've had discussions with people, and you know it very well. You have had discussions with your family not just about racial issues, but religious issues. Sometimes it doesn't work. You know, even a civil conversation wouldn't work and they will get more defensive and they would really like, you know, push for their beliefs on you. They'll try to impose it even harder. Uh, And it's okay. You know, you cannot change everyone and you cannot, you know, come to agreement with everyone and it's it's fine. Uh, But if your civil conversation even changes one person's way of thinking you know that that's a great change because that's like a ripple effect they're gonna then talk to their friends and family about it and someone else will get influenced and maybe things will change so this is kind of coming full circle but you were wondering earlier why people seem to identify so personally with groups or probably more specifically political identities and i i think there's a direct correlation between the amount of which the issue that you're discussing ties in with someone's personal identity and the difficulty that it is to change their mind on that issue. Mm -hmm. So the closer they align with that issue as being a personal, like if they think the core bit of their identity is the right to bear arms, that'll be the hardest thing, hardest bit of anything that you're going to change their mind on. Mm -hmm. Full stop. Mm-hmm. So what, what I would say, if you're in conversation, civil conversation, maybe it was pretty peaceful up to that point, but you see someone getting defensive, like, all right, uh, go on to another topic. Mm-hmm. Build the trust. Don't keep harping on those divisions. Maybe find some other stuff that you, maybe you agree on. Let them discover that you're, you are still level-headed, that you're reasonable. Mm-hmm. Maybe there are some issues that they thought that you would have went one way on, but mm-hmm. then you went another. Mm-hmm. That actually sides with them. Mm-hmm. You know what that does? Builds even more trust. They realize that you're not just looking at this from a party line standpoint, but you're evaluating issue by issue. Mm-hmm. So if anyone out there is trying to argue with that uncle or grandparent or friend, and there's always that one issue you guys keep coming back to that you can never agree on, find something else you do agree on. Talk about that. Hash it out. Maybe, maybe it's an issue that you both are frustrated with and actually have a similar perspective on, but you never would have figured that out if you just watched the news, Mm -hmm. if you just saw social media, because those aren't the sexy topics to talk about. Yep. And, I mean, you can go across the board. That's going to be the case. The less sexy topics will not be the mainly the the big divisive ones on social media, the ones that you can't do a little one-liner on and attack somebody over. Mm Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. Which, you know, kind of brings me to another point is that, you know, when we talked about identity and, you know, uh, cultural heritage and identifying with that history, um, there is also a thing that has, it was, you know, kind of coined, this term was coined. I think a couple decades ago, but it was, it was 2006, de- 2005. Yeah, I think so. Maybe the like 2000s. in the 1990s or 2000s. I'm not sure, but I think it started in the 1990s. Her research did. Yeah, and then, you know, uh, it was initially dismissed, but now it's kind of being taken more seriously because there's a lot of evidence behind it as well. Um, it is something called the 
PTSD, but not post-traumatic stress syndrome. Uh, but disorder. it's disorder. Yeah, it's more post-traumatic slave disorder. And what it is mostly is a residual uh, feelings of um, confinement within uh, the racial structure uh, and, and uh, stress and trauma from it, uh, which was inflicted upon your forefathers and you carry that trauma with you this trauma also arose not just from slavery but jim crow and the subsequent all, all, yes all, all of the all, stuff yes. going through the civil rights era and after exactly exactly and you know how it affects the current population so we know this and you know there are people who've overcome this and they have you know kind of changed a lot uh, of, of things around them but then there are sections of the black community that are still going through this, and there is no treatment for it. There is no, uh, you know, I guess, discussion about it, but that is something that a lot of them face. And just like how we see these, uh, you know, rural rednecks kind of saying uh, a big fuck you to our modern city living, uh, urban living, and saying like, hey, we are gonna do the way things that we want to do the way the things you know we feel is right similarly in a lot of black community there's a sense of resentment towards uh conventional conventional oppressor culture and they try to do things which are very very opposite to what the convention is and it might not seem uh, for ma- for us who are outside of that community and kind of looking into it we might call it you know the term ghetto or you know oh god it's just despicable but we don't know exactly what it is and when they say that it is their culture and it is their pride uh what they're trying to say is that that is something they built by themselves they made it for themselves as a way as a coping mechanism for the centuries of trauma that they have carried um so, so i was in yeah. a way it sounds more like a distress call than it is yes a cultural identity it's absolutely. more like a, a cry for help absolutely and instead of listening we just keep throwing more of them in jail jail or we kind of appropriate the whole thing by making kind of bringing it to the mainstream media yep. you know so I, I just I just feel I, I actually saw this one really good documentary and I suggested that to you and I'm gonna misquote the person's name um, but I, I, we can we can type it in the show notes uh, but so what she she's a professor she was a psychologist and um, she did her research on PTSD post-traumatic slave uh, uh, disorder and she was mentioning if you think about it, slavery ended really not too far. Uh, I mean, not too long ago, right? It was what in the eighteen. Uh, it 18- was abolished in eighteen sixty four. Eighteen sixty four, and then um, you had the civil rights was another hundred years after that. So Pretty much almost one hundred years yeah. after that. So for that hundred years. You know, they these the young black people right now that you're seeing, many of their great grandfathers, great grandmothers, 
were slaves and they're you know they lived in very highly segregated neighborhoods or yeah and they have gone through all of that cultural segregation harassment discrimination to today now it is very easy for us to say that oh but it doesn't exist today why are you being so you know uh, hell-bent on uh, thinking that everyone is racist thing is that imagine if your great grandmother was a slave went through all the discrimination trauma you know god like beatings and starvation and the fact that mainstream society just ignored ignored most of it this. they forwarded that trauma to their kids yeah their kids did not maybe firsthand experience that but they experienced that from their moms or their dads psyche. yeah and their way of thinking their worldview is shaped by what they and we all know this and freud absolutely like described it perfectly that the way we are as adults is a reflection of our childhood right now the way seems you know, like common sense it should be common sense and so these the trauma that has been passed through generations yes it is dissipating it's not as bad as it was supposed to be it is slowly dissipating but it's still there these old wounds were never addressed it's still there because we never acknowledged it no one ever talked about it they're like oh racism's abolished segregation's abolished now we everything's gushraba yeah and then what what did they do for the whole uh, if you think about it the whole segregation thing even what did they do they bunched up they clustered up all these black people and put them in a very Harlem restricted or... neighborhoods yeah did you know this and this is this blew my mind dj black people were not allowed to own property anywhere else apart from harlem for the york, longest for new york city, for yeah. New york city yeah. yeah for the longest time i can believe it and did you also know that they were displaced so that we could have central park in the upper west side yep they were displaced that. from that like that harlem wasn't that congested it was spread out but they were displaced so that they could build central park so that people in the upper west side could have a park a, a place of you know refuge from their daily city life to themselves sounds like maybe new york city owes reparations to the resident black residents of new york city absolutely for all the shit that they did it's absolutely like when, when i hear conservative whites out in the rural areas of the country always saying well you're calling us racist like the biggest racists are the ones that the whites are in the cities absolutely like this is the shit where it's happening had been happening absolutely this isn't just a fucking billboard that says whites only mm -mm. this is literal structural issues like the structural racism we're talking about these are the cities that were implementing it mm -hmm. like yeah. outright mm -hmm. yeah uh. <laughs> so if you do not let these people reintegrate into your society you do not give them resources to build their community to form businesses to get good education how do you expect that community is going to prosper yeah oh tulsa oklahoma black, uh, black wall street i think it was in the 1910s 
that was another community, black, mostly black-owned businesses. They were, there was, I think, 20 or 30 or $40 million worth of wealth was just lost during the looting. And I think that was the only time the U.S. military actually bombed a community in the U.S. Mm-hmm. It's like instances like this, like we've continually put our foot down on black people in the U.S., especially successful ones. And now, just because it's 2020, and now we don't do things exactly like this, even though it happened not so long ago, we act like, oh, what's your problem? Mm-hmm. Why don't you get over it? Mm-hmm. Oh, you have you have uh, some famous people that are athletes now? Like, what's the problem then? It's easy to think that way if you don't know all these other problems. And I think that's but, where the dialogue and the conversation... But what, is, what is the percent of black people who are successful? How many... Black it's, people it's are probably like, not that much, and it's not helping the communities where these black people are growing up, and, or it doesn't help the fact that I, the me, I think the median income and in, for blacks or African Americans was only like five or ten thousand dollars compared is, to with whites, it was like almost forty-five or fifty thousand dollars, which is just insane to me. I think it might have been net worth, but that's insane. Yeah, that's insane, and I I don't think it helps that majority of black people do live in these high expense neighborhoods where essentially they can be held down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, th- these are some of those not sexy topics that we're talking about. And you know, when, uh, when what, I, what's I, causing I, these problems? And I know this is the thing that I hear all the time is, Oh, but you know, Indians are also here, you know, and you know, they face racism too. But think about this. The Indians, yeah, but think about this. The Indians who came here, especially during 1970s when the U.S. actually opened up immigration to rest of the people, these were Indians who were well-educated. They had all like these big, like, you know, really good jobs that they came into. They never had to face um, economic hardships. These were people who were like, you know. Already well-to-do. They were, yeah, they were here because they were, you know, educated enough to hold these positions. So they, the racism, they, I'm sure they face some sort of biases, right? They have stereotypes. People would call you something. I don't know. But that's racism versus actual structural racism that prevents you from even getting onto that part of the ladder. Exactly. But you tell me what have, what have the U.S. done for black communities to help them build up oh we, we passed bills like affirm, affirmative action to give them spots in colleges but what have we done to actually fix the communities that they grow up in seriously we'll create some of these surface level policies oh well you can get a college degree but what if you can't even make it to college yeah oh we'll give you some spots at a job company but oh you already have a felony by that time you're that age like these communities are in decay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I would almost at this point in time, I would almost expect as much of a chance for someone that's growing up in a really poor West Virginia town to make it in society as I would someone from an inner city. So here's a statistic that's going to blow your mind. Okay. Majority of these diversity inclusion uh, initiatives that we have in a lot of corporations and affirmative action college actually uh, majority of these slots are being filled up by black women 
and not black men. Mm, I'm not surprised. And the reason, you know the reason why, you know. So we are failing young black men out there in every way possible, you know. These men and and the the women that are actually the black women, I'm so like proud and happy that they are getting all these successful jobs and they are, you know, doing so well. But these black women also tend not to marry because they are, you know, they have higher paying jobs. They do not go back to their communities anymore and they kind of segregate themselves from their community. And just black women, just successful black people in general and seem to just Absolutely. Leave. And s- s- the same goes, I'm telling you, like the same thing is that the men in the community, if you see the school statistics mm. um, of how many people graduate and it's, how many people go into college after atrocious. that, it's mostly women, yeah. black women who are going to college yeah. than black men. Black men mostly take up minimum wage jobs right after school to support their families or, you know, the other statistics, they are... Crime. Yeah. They become felons. Yeah. Sad. Uh, This is another one of those unsexy topics, but when the whole Me Too stuff came up, you'd start hearing counter arguments about, like, what about men? What about the struggles men are going through with, like, suicide or uh, just social expectations or being the provider things like that we would tie that back into it's like well this is where feminism can kind of help that out but from my perspective and if i'm wrong please correct me but a lot of those problems that women have brought up about men with like hyper masculinity with social expectations and and the like i think all of those are almost to the extreme in the black male community within inner cities like whether we're talking about hypermasculinity, whether we're talking about homophobia whether we're talking about anti-intellectualism like we've heard story i think uh, the guy that you worked with briefly didn't he mention something about like kids who studied in some yep. of these schools would be bullied yep these are some serious fucking problems and when feminism was a hot topic to talk about I don't think I ever heard them actually talk about the plight of the black male in inner cities. Mm-hmm. Like it was mostly from the perspective of a white woman dra- walking through a city, but we're not talking about like what the fuck is going on with black men in inner cities. Mm-hmm. Like as far as just <laughs> statistics or standpoint, they're suffering majorly. You know, the funny thing is that, um, Feminism in the U.S. it never really addressed issues that women of color face uh, in the U.S. They mostly the the point <laughs> of view was from the perspective of a white woman, and I think Bill Burr had a very funny bit on this. He's like, uh, the only loudmouths you see <laughs> are, are mostly you know white women, and like how hard it is. Karens. You know, like, the not, I mean, that's a completely different topic, but, uh, like, being a white woman is a privilege, honestly, like, a lot of other people wouldn't have, like, you know, you probably never had to go uh, clean someone's apartment for uh, a living, you did not probably have to... Um, we're talking about, especially white women in cities. In cities, yes, yeah. yes, for sure, you know, so don't i mean it's not it's not i'm not saying that it's right but it's not 
as bad as it was made it to be uh, as it was made to sound there are disgusting people like weinstein and uh, he's just they got called out yeah and he's running but in jail. also also he could not have done what he did if he didn't have allies and supports uh from male and female both yeah. in the industry yep. so you know call out everyone for that it's the industry's fault for doing it you yep. know so if you're going into that industry you know you know there would be you know predators everywhere gotta call it out you yeah you can't you cannot hide no especially it's it's really tying this in with the police brutality problem right now so many people are giving police officers shit for not calling out bad cops like where where are all the good actors to call out the bad bad actors in hollywood where were they mm-hmm. yeah so maybe we should say i can't even all a, actors a, are bad ab, actors just be a ab no, instead of a cab it'd be ab all actors are bad or bastards all actors are bastards like seriously, if if one st- stirs the spoils the pot, I'm like absolutely that fucking place is a cesspool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, I just think it's accountability uh, from each other, um, from your community being, you know, call out bullshit. Call, you know, don't be afraid of being uh, isolated. Just. Well, especially see, now with internet, there's so many communities out there. You say you distance yourself from one community. There's going to be a support community out there mm-hmm. for your specific issue. Yeah, guaranteed. Yeah. So you know, in in Bengali, we have this phrase, an idiom, that we say, "Onnai je kore ar onnai je shohe tara dujonei doshi." That means if you commit a crime and if you are suffering through a crime or if you're complicit to a crime you both are equally guilty mm-hmm. because you did not do anything you did not protest you did not uh, cry out for help you did not bring it to other people's attention did nothing so that perpetuated the crime to the next person so unless you call out that would never stop in some ways, that's almost worse because how many people don't say anything, mm-hmm. don't do anything, yep. and how that enables the abuser or the criminal yep. in this case. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, and you know, it has been a thing with the older generation where they just do not want to deal with the ugly side of society. They just want to hide it in the closet. And it's like the Earth Kingdom. Yeah. They Smiles. Just, the they smile. just never want everything should be happy and nice and pristine and you never really address got to keep that lawn properly mowed yep <sighs> so i'm i'm glad i'm glad that we are past that and we are kind of bringing out our own dirty laundries and throwing it out in public and yeah. you know trying to rectify things trying to redeem ourselves I think now that the genie's out of the bottle, the main, the momentum's already there to rectify a lot of these past mistakes. So what is important now is to make sure that that outrage is directed in a productive fashion, 
we eventually move past this symbolic phase of just fixing race issues to actually fixing race issues and addressing historical problems rather than just tearing down statues and taking down episodes that had blackface in it, even if it was in a satirical fashion. Let's make sure actual policies are in place and actual change is done. So this isn't enough. This is nothing. Mm-hmm. This is like tokenism. It's not, it's nothing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a way for the system to act like it's doing something to fix the problems without actually having to do anything. Yeah. This solves nothing. Like how many people are still watching old episodes of 30 Rock? Seriously? It's, mm-hmm. come on. And. So, and I, you know and how, the, the, how things should be solved? The first and foremost thing is that you have to fund the inner city schools. You have to get good teachers there. Got to change the property tax system too. Absolutely. Like they should, all these schools in the city should be funded the same. They Absolutely. Should. There should not be any discrimination like no. that. You know, give these kids a chance for a better education. Yeah. You know, build community centers so that these kids can go learn different things. You know. Uh, I would also let some of these kids in those cities go to different schools in the cities. Yeah. They shouldn't have to just go to the no- local school, but yeah. let them go to... And that's what that's a huge problem New York City has right now is that you can only go to your own school district. You cannot you cannot go to anything else. Horseshit. And which which again, yeah, which I feel is absolutely insane yep. because I can if I have the merit to be in a school, you should be able to go to any school in the city you want. I mean, we never had this issue in um, India, DJ. We never had this. Like, like you test into a school if it's yeah. a private school. And, it's a, and even if it's a public school, you can go to any public school you want to. You don't have to, you know. Yeah. Um, it, it is also funded by property taxes and stuff, but you can go to any school you want to go to. That should be the way it is here. You know, uh, some people just choose local schools because it's convenience, but... There were people who were like traveling for an hour to go to a better school. Hey, you want to talk about racism again? Why do you think it, it is so much the case that you stuff a certain demographic in certain neighborhoods and then you tell them that you can't send your kids to our neighborhood, yeah. to our schools? Mm-hmm. You want to talk about actual racism? There you fucking go. Yeah. Yeah. It's honestly like racism, structural racism, systemic racism exist in the cities it is not in the rural areas because it's probably what like 90 percent or so of black people actually live in these same cities absolutely like and that is something people have to understand and like you know yes there there are ignorant rednecks out there who would talk shit but they are not they're insignificant they're they're so nothing exactly to what's going on in the lives of the black community Black and the cities are absolutely responsible for perpetuating systemic racism for decades and nothing's done about it. But at least we, they're taking down statues. That does nothing. I mean, I, I agree. Statues should be taken down and put in a museum. But, you know, there's more that you can do to actually change, uh, you know, the lives of people. I don't want it. The Karens, the Karens of the world, the, the, the male equivalent of Karens are the ones that are secretly racist that are, I would say, I don't even like the word racist as much classist, because mm-hmm. I think if there were some real, let's say if he swapped out a bunch of these poor black people in these communities, switched them out with a bunch of really rednecky 
poor white people. It would do the that, same that thing. That didn't, that weren't classy, that maybe had like the cut off fucking Confederate t shirts and the fucking redneck hats and chewed tobacco all the time. They would not let them in their school at all. They would shun them. I can guarantee it's honestly, it's not a race war. It is a class war. We know it. You know, we just don't want to address it. And we. I mean, there's an element of race to it, but I don't. I'll let you finish and then I'll talk. No. I mean, as you said, if we replace it with the rural redneck community, replace black communities with that, they would do the same fucking thing with them as well. Um, Very elitist. Yes. Yes, for sure. Uh, it's not blatant racism, but it is. It's damaging. It's it very is damaging. Da- it is, yeah. They they just want their bubble to be intact. Yeah. Now, I, I just want to make this point about how we, uh, the terms that we use and the precision in which we identify problems. Uh, a, a couple points. One thing I've noticed, and I don't know if you've seen this online, but I've seen this com- continual conflation with systemic racism and racism. And they'll take the definition of systemic racism, which is pretty much saying that there's societal structures or things that are put in place that uh, work against the interests of minority communities. Like it's it's a system-wide problem Mm -hmm. versus racism where it's like an individual behavior in which you look down upon another person or you think that you're better than another person simply based on the fact that they're a different race. But they've conflated the two where they'll say that definition of racism isn't sufficient in the sense that white people can't be victims of racism. But no. if you look at this one I'm trying to get at, and I've seen people conflate the two. It's like, well, white people can't be racist. No, no. Oh, they can be racist, but they can't be victims of racism because they're a part of the oppressor class. They're thinking in terms of systemic racism. And I think that's a very disingenuous problem that we need to deal with because if we were ever going to bridge this divide, we can't lie like this. It's clearly false to to imply that racism is only directed one way. People on the other side are like, that's bullshit. Like I have, like one of my friends talked about, he had a friend that was half black, got uh, accused of being white is actually half black and we both know people that are technically half black technically are could be considered black but look white probably could experience racism from black people or whomever and i'm not saying that white people experience racism at the level of black people i'm not i wouldn't argue that but just having that argument alone i think arguing it from that perspective just shuts people out of the conversation that could easily be allies mm-hmm. if we're talking about actual structural issues. Mm-hmm. Stop saying, oh, well, white people can't experience this shit. Like, oh, fuck, that should be like, um, that's horrible. Like, could, like, tell me about your experience. Like, mm-hmm. what was your experience? And can I, I think, share mine? I think and, we should term, uh, we should coin a term called systemic classism, which is, which is what is there. Very, very much prevalent in the U.S. rather than um, systemic racism because, you know, the whole deplorable comment, you know, anyone who is not 
the part of the urban elites. Liberal elites. Liberal, oh yeah, liberal Quote, elites. unquote, liberal. They are just despicable. So it doesn't matter if you're black and it doesn't matter if you're white or Hispanic or... You have enough money. You, if you have money, you're one of them. If you don't, you're deplorable. Well, I will say a caveat in here. And I've heard stories of this. Say, even if you are a rich black man and you have a nice suit, you're probably still much more likely yeah. to face shit. So there's definitely still an element of racism yeah. to throw in here. And yep. if anyone wants to still insist that's an institutional racism, fine. I can't mm-hmm. argue against that. But we need to understand that regardless of what term you use, we should be focusing on the same goal. Yep. And I think far too often people get stuck in this whole fight of labels. Mm-hmm. And figuring out what they want to call it rather than what do you want to do about it. Mm-hmm. So if you just focus on the issue by itself, even a lot of these people that share like Blue Lives Matter and shit on Facebook, if you talk to them about the specific issue without even talking about the label, I'm willing to bet you could get them to agree that something needs to change there. Mm-hmm. A lot of per- people I know personally that share that Blue Lives Matter shit on Facebook that seem very... Uh, tropey conservative mm-hmm. i'm fairly certain if we went through these issues as they are without just focusing on the labels and calling all white people racist mm-hmm. they would probably agree yeah so some people would call what i'm suggesting tone policing whatever we're focusing too much on labels again like how about from a strategic standpoint, what's the best way you can approach an issue in which we can actually find a solution and get agreement on said solution? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, that, that's all my thing is. Like, if you want to actually fix these problems, then that's what we got to do. Uh, oh, and just lastly, just want to talk about the drums of war. Yeah. There's not too much to talk about it right now, but recently there was... Uh, China encroaching on India, and there was a nice skirmish where there's probably about 40 or so troops on both sides in total. China's hiding their numbers, naturally. Um, But there's about 40 soldiers dead, and now we have Russia apparently paying Taliban to kill U.S. troops, according to U.S. intelligence. Call them bullshit. Um, But it seems like there's uh, things churning under the surface of all this racial tension that we're talking about. What are your thoughts? For sure. I mean, you know, people are very, honestly, right now, very, very caught up with the whole pandemic and uh, the whole racial conflict that's going on. And they're not paying attention to the issues that are brewing underneath, you know, Again, war is the most profitable business, and we we do not seem to understand that. And if there is no war, um, economies collapse. So <laughs> I think U.S. is trying a way to start up something so that since, you know, the whole thing in uh, Iraq didn't work out as well, <laughs> Afghanistan didn't work out as well, uh, you know, the whole Syria bullshit didn't work out as well. So you why know, not how, another one? Uh, well, yeah, why don't we start up another war so that we can maintain our military industrial complex? And uh, I think I think, you know, you know it uh, that we are already in debt. 
Um, I haven't even looked lately, but it's probably north of 24 trillion. Yes. So the way we can uh, kind of, I guess, um, make our economy boom back, back up would be to engage in another war that would we would be able to sell some of our military equipments. We would be able to, uh, you know, uh, kind of start building back up the whole MIC, so we'll see. Yeah, it, it could be that. There's a couple ways to look at this. Uh, some people might say maybe this is Russia taking advantage of the fact that, like we were talking about earlier, the fact that China's potentially going to war with India, and India's kind of allied with U.S., and the U.S. is struggling with racial tensions and the pandemic flaring up again, that if you're going to go after the U.S. or try and go after the U.S., this would probably be a good time to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one perspective. On another, doesn't make any fucking sense why the Taliban would need paid extra money to kill U.S. troops. It just seems absurd in its face. I, I don't. Even mm. if the Russia did that, we should just be laughing. That's stupid. Mm. Like, Taliban was has never been our allies, and and then even with China and India, why do you think China's stirring shit up right now with India? Because India is very busy tackling the whole pandemic situation, and there's not just that though. You have the riots picking back up again mm-hmm. in Hong Kong. Yeah. I shouldn't say riots. I think I believe there's still protests. Yeah. But that's a big problem. That's an existential problem for mm-hmm. China. And mm-hmm. anytime a country's on the grasp, on the cusp of collapsing, war is a great tool mm-hmm. to try and bring your country back together. Yep. To bring the clamps down. Mm-hmm. And maybe going back to the U.S., maybe that's a ploy with the U.S., not just for economically, but see the country seems to be fraying away at the fabrics mm-hmm. well why don't we start another potential war that'll unify us mm-hmm. it's fucking yep. stupid yeah i mean there are yeah there are, these are some plausible uh reasons why but we wouldn't be sure until we actually see this happening um i don't know I and mean, time and time and time again we get news from u.s intelligence saying oh so and so is doing this this is why we need to engage the whole Syrian gas attacks come to find out by, I think it was from OPEC a few years later that there is no actual evidence mm-hmm. that the gas was ever even used by the Assad mm-hmm. and the Syrian government who yep. did it don't know but the whole civil war that we created over there where they had hundreds of thousands killed millions displaced into Europe mass causing cultural issues yep. in those European nations it's like, when are we going to fucking learn? We were lied to in Iraq with yellow cake. I mean, we could argue whether that was an intelligence problem or if that was the administration spinning intelligence. I don't know. Uh, we were pretty much lied to in Vietnam. We get into Vietnam. All the times our intelligence agencies fucked with countries down in South America. The whole Korean War. Yep. Gulf of Tonkin. It was a mess. I, it's like, when are we going to fucking learn? That's that's all. Maybe that'll be a good topic for next time. That would be episode 10. And if more events happen in that front, I'm sure that'll be a great topic to dive straight into. Maybe the history on U.S. foreign policy blunders. Ooh, that's like a very heavy topic to tackle. Fuck. Well, I should probably get some life insurance. <laughs> Yeah. Any concluding thoughts before we go? No, 
I just think, you know, as the topic for today, making sense of this crazy, crazy world, this is our little way of finding some sense, finding some reason and uh, just navigating it uh, through some rationality and uh, poise and, you know, <laughs> calmness. We try. Yep. But thank you for tuning in to our wonderful show. This is Simber Dialogues, and we'll see you next time for episode 10. Episode 10 next time on the Simber. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye now.